Hello, everyone. Welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is Introduction to African American Studies, Week 4. We are covering African American history from African empires all the way up to the Civil Rights Movement. I hope everyone is doing well this evening. Uh, We've got a lot to cover in this podcast. By my count, we are starting with sort of 2000 BC and coming all the way up to the Civil Rights Movement. So in this podcast, we will be covering about 4,000 years of history as as it relates to the African-American experience. And I just kind of want to start by talking about the importance of history in understanding the African-American experience. And our authors really place an emphasis on history, but they talk about history at different levels, right? They talk here about a macro level versus a micro level, what they call historiography, which is sort of an an analytical lens to place on the past. And so what they mean by that is, is which parts of history should we be looking at? Which narrative should we be looking at? Which people should we be looking at? And when we think about a macro history, we tend to think in terms of world leaders. We t- tend to think in terms of dynasties and empires and, and major battles and wars and major political developments, right? All the stuff that sort of happens within the elite levels of society, so to speak, right? All these decisions, all these battles and wars are being fought by the very elite of society. But Um, As our authors say here on page 51, most contemporary historical research examining the experiences of people of African descent, right, if we want to understand sort of how history affects the current experiences of African Americans, we need to think of it more in terms of um, our best characterized as a social history. And social history, right, this micro level sort of historiographical lens emphasizes the examination of social structures and the interaction of different groups in a society as opposed to affairs of state or national development. So emphasizing social structures and interactions of different groups. So not just thinking about the decisions made by the elites, but how are the workers, how are the peasants, how are women in this society, right? How 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 is this society experience through their perspective and in turn how does this society depends on their involvement and their achievements and and their work and so it's really um maybe a different sort of historical perspective than we're used to getting especially if we're trying to cover four thousand years of history in a single podcast within african-american studies the authors go on micro level social history research is framed necessarily by And this is very important. This is where the macro level master narrative that foregrounds classical and traditional Africa and that highlights the manner in which African origins and historical experiences of African people continue to influence the circumstances, (coughs) excuse me, of African Americans. And so here, right, we want to use both the macro and the micro historical lenses. We want to understand what's happening on the ground to real people throughout this, this entire historical period. <clears throat> but we also want to keep in mind that the master narrative, right? And, and, and really, when we look at the master narrative of this 4,000 years, we're going to see <clears throat> it starts with, with African empires being more powerful and more developed and, and arguably having a more civilized character 
than their counterparts in Europe at the time. And this changes with the advent of European exploration and specifically this, the, the Atlantic slave trade, the African slave trade that results from it. And so from this perspective, it really becomes important to think about stereotypes regarding African-Americans, to think about the way African history has been negated and, and dismissed in Western history as, as a strategy to maintain white supremacy in the United States, understanding the African heritage, understanding where the Africa is located in African-American becomes extremely important for us. So because I'm trying to cover so much ground in this podcast, I will have to be relatively brief as I move through these eras. I want to start with the heritage of Africa, right? When we think about African civilizations, a lot of times we don't think of ancient Egyptian civilization as being part of that, but the authors argue here, and really this is important, they're taking an Afrocentric look, perspective when understanding the role of Africa in world history here. Um, Ancient Egypt is an African civilization and at one point was dominated by people with black skin, right? People from Ethiopia um, is what it was called and and still is called. Um, And so this is where they kind of start, right? This is 4,000 years ago with with one of the world's earliest and most sophisticated civilizations at the time. Um, And this is, is to make a point, right? Europeans perpetrated the myth, quoting the textbook here on page 52, Europeans perpetrated the myth that Africa had no history or civilization of world significance in order to glorify themselves and to establish in order to glorify themselves and to establish white cultural hegemony over Africa and its peoples. The denigration of African history and culture also served as a moral or religious justification for the transatlantic slave trade and for Europe's colonization of Africa. And so the notion of Africa having a history um, becomes important to whether or not its inhabitants are classified as humans, right? So this, this notion of having a history becomes an important part of the classification of what becomes human. And to deny the inhabitants of Africa a history um, is, is an effect to dehumanize them. And this serves, once again, as a justification for this emergent idea of race that is forming at the time. And so it's important to remember Right, going back, this is this is all people, right, originally um, come out of the African continent. And so it really is a cradle of civilization. And yet we still have efforts to negate African history. And and this this is happening even today as we speak. Um, do you want to know what I think one of the most racist shows on television is right now? And it's a pretty popular show that most people don't think of as racist, and that's Ancient Aliens. And I don't know if you've heard of Ancient Aliens, but it's this TV show. It's on, um, ironically enough, the History Channel. Um, it's this TV show based on um, some some crackpot European theories about, well, maybe Egyptians didn't really build the Great Pyramids. Maybe the Nazca lines in South America weren't uh, built by indigenous peoples there. Uh, maybe all of this was the work of aliens. Right, aliens have been around us and they came down and they helped the people build the pyramids, and that's why they were able to build these incredible structures. The Egyptians were never would never have been able to do this by themselves. This is the implication, right? That these primitive peoples would never have been able to do this, right? That would that would disrupt all of our all of our sort of uh preconceptions about about racial difference, for example, and and the superiority of Western and European civilizations over over all other civilizational forms. And so 
this is not a new idea and it's still being perpetrated in some unlikely places. So I just wanted to point out if you ever run across the show, ancient aliens, just remember it's, it's really, I mean, it's one of the most racist shows on TV and not many people talk about this, but it goes back to this historical perspective. And so I want to move from there toward, you know, some historical fact. And when I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I mean, it really is true that throughout the middle ages in Europe, which, um, was just a terrible time to live uh, and and live not well, right? We have life expectancies, you know. Um, if you lived to be 30, you were old, that sort of thing. Um, known as a very dark and chaotic and sort of barbaric time in European history. And yet, what do we have happening in Africa at the same time? First of all, we have the Ghanaian Empire um, being consolidated around 300 AD. This is... Um, about 176 years before the fall of Rome, just to put this in, in a European context as well. Um, Ghana ended up um, encompassing a large amount of land in West Africa, um, highly developed systems of trade networks, and, and they had education and were skilled craftsmen, all these other things at a time when Europe was once again descending into barbarism. Um, the next main empire to know about, our textbook discusses, is Mali. And these are all going to be West African empires. And, and, our, and our authors here are quick, are quick to note that um, West Africa isn't the only region in Africa that saw highly developed civilizational forms um, and incredible diversity in terms of uh, social relationships and interactions and um, trade networks um, all throughout the continent. And Africa is a very big place. But these Western African empires, they say, are more significant, perhaps, in understanding the African-American experience because it is from these regions in West Africa along the Atlantic coast where the majority of individuals were captured, enslaved, and then transported across the Atlantic during the Middle Passage. The second one, following Ghana, right, um, each of these empires sort of have their rise, their peak, and then their decline. Um, Mali sort of takes the place of Ghana, and they all have these overlapping territories in Western Africa for the most part. What, differenti what differentiates Mali and Songhai from Ghana is the religion of the rulers, and, and the rulers of both Mali and Songhai were, were Muslim rulers, and, and our authors um, you know, are quick to point out that this is a very significant in terms of the development of African culture at the time. Um, it's, 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 it's evidence of, um, transnational and cross-cultural, um, intercourse and, and ideas being exchanged on a continent-wide scale that simply, once again, was not being done in Europe at the time. Mali is known for a few powerful rulers, including Sundiata and most famously Mansa Musa, Mansa Musa, who was the first African ruler to um, to go on a Hajj, a pilgrimage to Mecca. It's one of the um, main pillars of the Islamic faith. If you are able, you are to at least one at one point in your life make a pilgrimage to Mecca and pray at the Kaaba, um, right there in the center of the city. Um, Mansa Musa's expedition became famous worldwide because of the incredible wealth and the incredible amount of power that he was able to project 
through this grand caravan. He crossed the entire Sahara Desert. Um, what is this? They brought 12 tons of gold borne by 80 camels. And I've read other accounts of this very famous Hajj in 1324, by the way. I've read other accounts of this very famous Hajj. It said, Mansa Musa brought so much gold with him that he destabilized financial markets throughout the Middle East and into the Arabian Peninsula because he was just, you know, trying to show his generosity. This is what you do as a powerful African ruler. And this is why many of these empires weren't formed necessarily through conquest and war. They were formed through powerful rulers being generous and saying, hey, look, if, if I... Um, I mean, and there was definitely intimidation and force involved, but it was more like your lives will be better if you join up with me and, and, and generosity becomes a big part of empire building and, um, very different, for example, than European themes of empire building. Once again, speaking to these sort of large scale cultural differences that we see in social forms, um, that develop in Europe and Africa, um, throughout, you know, the past few thousand years here. And before moving on further, I do want to point out that uh, the date of Mansa Musa's Hajj, once again, 1324. Let's map this once again onto European history in 1349, um, 25 years after Mansa Musa goes on this um, goes on this 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 pilgrimage. Um, this is the year of the Black Death in Europe, with and starting in 1349, Europe's population would decrease by 30 percent. One out of every three people in Europe died as a result of the Black Death. This is the absolute lowest point in European history during during the Middle Ages. And, and it really opened the door later for the Renaissance. Um, but yet again, we have these African empires absolutely flourishing during this time. The Mali Empire was supplanted almost immediately um, by the Songhai Empire. It's important to note that the Songhai Empire... Um, is the one that is around when the Portuguese start coming down the coast, when the Spanish start coming down the coast and capturing slaves. There already was a slave trade going on in Africa, but as the authors point out, it worked under very different mechanics than, than the institution that would later arise out of European um, influences. But the Songhai Empire was a Muslim empire, Islamic empire, that um, was flourishing at the time the Portuguese started to come down. In fact, one of the reasons for the fall of the Songhai Empire is that the Portuguese um, beginning a tactic which would prove very fruitful for European conquest for hundreds of years, um, allied with enemies of the, the stronger state. And so what we end up with is a divide and conquer strategy from the standpoint of Europeans. You take a smaller enemy of the Songhai Empire, like folks in Morocco, you give them lots of guns, so they have a smaller army, but because of the assistance and the technological assistance are able to overthrow a much larger force. So this is how European powers got a lot of their dirty work done for them by supplying these smaller powers with arms. This is a situation that would play out all throughout the West Coast of Africa as the slave trade developed. The authors sort of undersell um, the willingness of some coastal African leaders of smaller groups to gain power through participation in the slave trade. And what we see is if you read like a book like Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, where she tries to retrace it, it was always an inland thing. So the coastal folk, the coastal groups would, would go on raids further inland. 
um, and then gain power to take over the groups further inland. And then they would extend their raids to capture people for exportation and, 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 and for selling um, to Europeans. They would have to go further and further inland to do that. But it's all part, if we think about the sort of grander European strategy of divide and conquer, many African rulers didn't realize the scale of it because there weren't um, lines of communication were now being controlled by European ships, for example. So many African, uh, African rulers during the beginnings of the slave trade were not aware of the absolute scale at which it was coming to take on. We're not aware that millions and millions of people were starting to fall prey to this system. And so now I want to jump ahead. We'll talk, start talking about the institution of slavery itself. Why, why did it become so popular and prominent? Um, why were Africans the ones who became mostly the victims of this system? Um, and it really has to do, you know, let's take a black Marxist perspective with the development of capitalism in Europe. And, and if we look at what slave labor was used to do in the new world, in the Caribbean, in North America, it was to make sugar, which was used to make rum and molasses. It was used to grow tobacco and, and later cotton, in addition to all other sorts, rice and, and, um, indigo and, and in addition to all other products that were, that were in high demand due to these, these revolutions in, in manufacturing processes in Europe and in Great Britain, especially Great Britain came to rely on the slave trade in order for this triangular sort of profit, right? The British, for example, if, if invented the highly efficient and profitable triangular trade process, um, it worked this way. Africans were bought on the West Coast, the African Gold Coast, with New England rum. So think about this. Um, the English would show up uh, on the coast of Africa with a shipment of rum, right? This is a very healthy thing. It's, it's, it leads to good decision-making, right? We can all agree on that. Um, and in fact, you know, I'm, of course, I'm being facetious here. Um, alcohol was used as, as sort of a psychological tool to, for, for white dominance in many colonial contexts because it was this sort of new substance for many, um, for many indigenous peoples at the time. So, the British would come in with a shipment of rum. They would take that rum and buy slaves with that rum. And then the slaves were sold in the West Indies to the sugar plantation owners for sugar and molasses. So the British would take the slaves across the Atlantic Ocean, right, that they bought with rum. And then they're going to sell the slaves in exchange for sugar and molasses, which they're then going to take in their boats from the Caribbean, the West Indies, up to New England so that the sugar and molasses can be made into more rum, which they then take right back to Africa to buy more slaves, which they then take back to the Caribbean to buy more sugar and rum. Right? It becomes this triangular process. Extremely profitable for those for the owners of these enterprises, to say the least, because it's all it, it, it it's all free labor for the most part. And so slavery becomes this sort of fundamental, uh, this foundational part of the origins of capitalism in this sense. And this only accelerated with the invention of the cotton gin in 1793, 
Um, and this, this, this led to, of course, the King Cotton South, which we'll get to a little bit in the podcast. Um, I do want to talk a little bit while I'm here about blacks in the Revolutionary War. This is sort of a theme that kind of popped out upon rereading these, these pages tonight. Um, the role of African Americans in the American Armed Forces um, seems to play an outsized um, an outsized part of the 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 sort of progress or, or non progress that African Americans have gained, um, or or that African Americans have um, achieved in relation to equality in the United States. George Washington, right, didn't let blacks free or slaves serve until there was a need for more manpower later in the war. This is a pattern that plays out throughout American history up until 1948, when President Truman formally desegregates the armed forces. And, and really 1948, this date really might be thought of as the, the beginning of the civil rights movement and the beginning of, of this more large scale movement for racial equality in the United States. But this, this pattern of, of, of African-Americans not being allowed to serve in the military um, starts in the Revolutionary War. And it, it, that wasn't the case beforehand, is what the authors are saying. Um, they had served in the, 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 the battles against the Indians and the French and Indian War and, um, you know, it fought against the Spanish and the French. The American Revolutionary War is when they're first um, banned from service. Also note, um, by 1750, Virginia had 60,000 slaves um, as part of its population. And I don't want to spend too much time around here. I need to move on to a more social historical aspects of slavery. And here I would point you to page 66. Starting here, this is when we have um, much more detail about sort of the life of slavery. We have, starting on page 67, a discussion of the house and field slave distinction. This is made famous by Malcolm X, of course. Um, in Malcolm X's words, you know, the Negro in the field caught hell, whereas the, uh, the house slave, the slave who works in the house, the master, gets to eat leftovers from the master's meals, gets to wear the master's old clothes, right? Becomes closer to whiteness as a result. We can also see this play out in the development of, of colorism and preferences for different skin colors in the contemporary African-American community um, to illustrate, right, the significance of this house field uh, slave distinction, which our textbook says is still reflected in contemporary black life, uh, contemporary black relationships and interactions. I'll just point you to a comment Kobe Bryant made about Steph Curry one time. And this is when Steph Curry um, was still kind of young in the league and was still only known for like being pretty good at three pointers, but wasn't like, you know, the MVP yet. The Warriors weren't the Warriors yet. And Kobe Bryant said, you know, that Steph Curry dude, he takes it to the hole like a light skinned dude. And what do you think Kobe Bryant meant by that? And I've asked my classes this, you know, when I'm able to lecture to y'all in person. And, and every time someone raises their hand, it's like Kobe was saying that Steph is soft. Now, we could debate what soft is, but to me, this goes back to colorism in the black community as well as this house field slave distinction. Once again, right, we can't, we can't like look at this 
as this is um, a problem that was created by the black community. This is once again, a sort of a divide and conquer tactic used by the master to divide the slaves. And we see how this plays out um, later on in our textbooks, discussions of slave revolts, which were often betrayed by a house slave, right? There's, there's a few examples in our textbook of, of all these field slaves getting together and Denmark Vesey gets all these people together. Matt Turner gets all these people together. But one or two house slaves get wind of the plot and then they betray, right, the rest of the conspirators. And so, once again, this is a divide and conquer tactic, not to be sort of um, a critique of disunity in the black community by any means. I think it's important to address the field house slavery distinction. Uh, where else? I have like conditions. Where's the word conditions? What was it like to experience slavery? And if you've seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, you might have a good idea that did a pretty good job of talking about of talking about the conditions of slavery. But we have some detailed descriptions here in the book that I can't find right now. Hold on one second. Found it here on page 67. Enslaved blacks generally lived in one-person windowless huts or shacks with cracks in the walls and dirt floors. They were not insulated from the rain, wind, or snow, and the smoke from heating and cooking was suffocating. Enslaved blacks usually slept on pallets of rags. Two or more families shared a cabin or hut. They customarily made their own crude furniture and utensils. Their diets consisted mostly of salt pork, cornmeal, molasses, and dried beans. Black autobiographies record that the food was sometimes sufficient in bulk, but totally unbalanced and not sufficiently nutritious to sustain a person's physical endurance and health. Sickness and death from epidemics of yellow fever, tuberculosis, cholera, malaria, and other diseases were a constant plight in the slave quarters. Of course, the lot of enslaved Africans invariably depended on the humaneness or cruelty of the slave master. And this is just, a, um, you know, a short description of the conditions faced by slaves. And, and um, one wonders how, given these conditions, which were widely known, right, widely known, given these widely known conditions, how it could ever have been argued, as it was at the time, that blacks liked being enslaved because they enjoyed the civilization that their servitude gave them access to which was the thinking, right? Um, and there was even, there was even um, like a doctor who came up with a, a, a disorder. There was a disorder, drapedomania. That was, um, it was supposedly a mental disorder that would make, that, that would make you compelled to escape if you were a slave, right? And what do our authors have to say about that? This is patently untrue. Right. This is just once again used as a justification for racial hierarchy, white supremacy, and the continuation of the institution of slavery. Slaves engaged in all kinds of manner of resistance. Um, escape was a big one, but Herbert Aftaker also describes various tactics of resistance here, quoting on page 69 by individual slaves. Slaves would feign illness. They employed self-mutilation. They refused to work. They engaged in sabotage and strikes and attempted and often succeeded in escaping. 
They also resorted to arson and to poisoning and assassinating slave masters. We could think of dozens and dozens of these these episodes um, that may have happened, hundreds that may have happened over the years. And so all this points to the fact that slaves did not enjoy their condition, um, were patently opposed to it, and would look for any means to lessen the severity of their plight or end it altogether. And 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 this is um and this is basically what everyone thought. And so, and then we go through this list of these famous revolts, most of which, or many of which happened in Virginia. Our chapter moves from there to the Civil War. Um, you know, of course, we have increasing abolitionism. This is a result of um, increasing numbers of more educated blacks, free blacks, quasi-free blacks, as our textbook calls them, in northern cities, as well as the allegiances of white allies and white abolitionists. But I just want to note our textbook's very ambivalent words about, you know, what Abraham Lincoln's convictions were. You know, was he an anti-racist in the sense that we would think of him today? I definitely don't think so. And I think our, our textbook authors would agree with that. He probably was a racist in that in he thought that blacks were inferior to whites. And in fact, he was a proponent of so-called back to Africa plans where all blacks would just be like they could just leave um, and and um, go back to. And this is where when the 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 free colony of Liberia was founded in Africa, the first democratic state in the African continent as a result of this. So what was Lincoln thinking? Abraham Lincoln's true moral conviction on slavery and blacks will never be known. He was assassinated in 1865, and much controversy exists among scholars regarding the interpretation of Lincoln's speeches and actions and his attitude toward freedom and equality for Africans in America. One historian suggests that freedom for blacks was foremost in Lincoln's mind, but that he was equally concerned about having a constitutional base for emancipation that would withstand judicial scrutiny. Remember, he was a lawyer earlier in his career. Another historian, you know, Lerone Bennett, on the other hand, offers a very different interpretation. Bennett views Lincoln's ambiguous and ambivalent statements and actions on the issue of black freedom as indicative of the self-preservation motive of a politician. Uh, in other words, Abraham Lincoln didn't care one way or the other as long as it would get him elected and ensure his political base. And so we're about at the halfway point of this sort of history that we're going through. And really, we're going to condense the second half of this. But I want to point out here, if we think about this historical narrative, right, that we're sketching out on the podcast tonight, I want to think of peaks and valleys where we have, you know, relatively higher, higher points of equality and freedom for African-Americans and, and then and then lower points, and that this changes over time. And of course, we start with this very high point of the Mali and Songhai empires, that descends into the lowest of low points, right? 300 years of slavery. And then we have a high point, emancipation, right? Which is where, where we've gotten to in the podcast at this point. And then reconstruction, right? It becomes another high point. We have um, the, the forced inclusion of, we have the forced inclusion by the federal government of, of African-American politicians and, and uh, people in, in positions of leadership, as well as implementation of public schools for newly freed slaves and a bunch of other reforms. 
And then reconstruction ends abruptly in 1876 with the compromise between Rutherford B. Hayes and Sam Tilden, giving Hayes the presidency. Um, and really, we, that's when we descend into this era of Jim Crow, which had already been brewing in the South ever since the end of the Civil War. So once again, another very low point. <clears throat> um, I would say it's still not as low as slavery, but there are important differences between Jim Crow and between slavery. Number one, in Jim Crow, black lives matter less than under slavery because um, because the institution of slavery is no longer around to, to sort of um, commodify black bodies in that way. And so if black bodies can't be commodified in a specific way, then then, then the lives themselves become less valuable. And this is when, you know, we have the era of lynchings and this is when the, uh, police brutality, when um, these sorts of things start to become more and more frequent as means of enforcing the racial hierarchy um, where you can't enforce it through the institution of slavery anymore. And so I don't want to spend too much time talking about um our textbook chapter here. We're going to talk more about this era in American history next week when we talk about Du Bois, but we're not going to read chapter two in Souls of Black Folk. Um, and this is when Du Bois offers a history of reconstruction. And, and, and I do want you to know this in that chapter, he talks about the Freedmen's Bureau, which is mentioned here on page 76 in your textbook. He talks about three things that the Freedmen's Bureau needed to do three things and this would stand, I think, even to today, three things that African-Americans need in order for equality to be achieved in the United States. The first is property or land. Uh, we would make call this reparations today. This is what Du Bois thought, one of the three things. The second thing was education, um, free education or, or just guaranteed education of some kind. And the third thing was civil rights political participation. So civil rights, education, and property were the three things Du Bois believes that African-Americans absolutely needed in order to achieve equality in American society. Um, the Freedmen's Bureau was spectacularly unsuccessful in the property aspects of it, as well as the political participatory aspects of it, especially after federal authorities left as part of the 1876 Compromise. But the school systems that the Freedmen's Bureau established did end up becoming successful. Du Bois ended up working at one of those schools um, early in his career, um, which leads me right thinking about this difference between slavery and Jim Crow. Our authors talk about it as this form of neo-slavery. And, and, and I want us to think of Jim Crow as a combination of two things, right? And, and when I ask my students, you know, in class, Hands will go up and someone will say, uh, you know, Jim Crow is uh, segregation, right? And it's not just a, just segregation generally. It's a specific kind of segregation, segregation codified by law, de jure segregation, using some Latin words there. Um, this is Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, that decreed separate, ver separate but equal facilities would be okay on a racial basis. Um, this is a white drinking fountain and a black drinking fountain. This is a, a you know, a colored entrance in the back. Um, no, no, uh, you know, black hotels, white hotels, that sort of thing. In Lumberton County, North Carolina, in the 1920s, they built a movie theater, Lumberton County, 
It's 30% white, 30% Native American, 30% African American. They built a movie theater that had three separate entrances, three separate ticket booths, six bathrooms, three separate concession stands, and an elaborate network of passages and hallways so that racial mixture would never occur at any point throughout a patron's movie-going experience in this facility. This is de jure segregation. The other part of this equation is racial terrorism. Now, what do I mean by racial terrorism? I'm talking about um, the racial violence. I'm talking about the lynchings. I'm talking about the Ku Klux Klan, this, this, this extrajudicial organization that existed almost solely to stamp out black voting participation in the South um, in the 19th century, in the late 19th century. And, and I want to talk about a thinker here that actually, uh, or an activist here that our textbook does not mention at all in this section when they really should. Ida B. Wells Barnett, um, an African-American female journalist, um, didn't have too many of those in the late 19, in the late 1800s. Um, and she made it her life's work to go around and document any and every case of lynching she could find. And this is a result of one of her friends having been killed in a lynching in Memphis. Um, and so she traveled around the South documenting these incidents. And um, one time she documented one from Roanoke, Virginia. This was in 1899, I believe. Um, and so I will share this story just to give us a sense of what, what Jim Crow America was like. Um, in the market in downtown Roanoke, the farmer's market, which is still there. Um, you know, a black man and a white woman got into an argument um, and the, the white woman accused the black man of stealing or, or being aggressive. The black man accused the white woman of not giving him correct change um, for one of his purchases. Uh, it was the white woman's stall. An argument ensued. I would imagine that they yelled at each other in public, probably didn't say very nice things. Um, this is a sort of uppity, right? This is a sort of uppity behavior that was was severely punished um, by white mobs um, if it happened in a public place like that. And sure enough, um, the situation escalated. By that night, a mob had formed to kill this man. Um, the mayor of Roanoke, who was white, stepped in. He was like, this is crazy. You know, it's trying to send the mob away. It got worse. The mayor of Roanoke called in an armed militia to, to fight back the mob. <clears throat> and, and a gunfight ensued, and several of these militia members were killed trying to protect this guy from the lynch mob. And there's at this point that the mayor, that the city mayor was like, we're, you know, you guys need to get out of here. He, he pulls out his militia, abandoning this black man to the fate of the mob. Um, they take him from where he's being held. They drag him out to the street. They riddle his body with bullets. They drag him around in the streets and more. They hang him up. They tie him up to a tree <clears throat> on Elm Street near downtown Roanoke, shoot him some more, set him on fire, and leave him there hanging from the tree until he was cut down at 6 o'clock that morning. I'm sorry about pausing right there. It's not easy to tell these stories, but it's important that we hear them. It's important that we confront them 
in the course of our look at this history. Um, black people still aren't safe in the streets right now. And so we don't see this kind of mob violence. We do still see lynch, lynch, lynch style killings like um, Arno Arbery earlier this year. Um, the last recorded lynching in the state of Virginia was in Withville, just down the road from here um, in the southwest Virginia in 1933. So once again, we're going to talk more about the Jim Crow era here later. It is during this era, moving on, um, it is during this era that we start to see this mass movement of African Americans from the southern states into northern cities. And, and we can imagine that the, the threat of a lynch mob might be a major reason for this. The threat of KKK violence might be a major reason for this. Also, we do have more job opportunities, right? The uh, slave system is replaced by the sharecropping system, which is not much better than slavery in that you are tied to your land through debt. It's almost like a mixture between slavery and serfdom, the sharecropping system. And so on the one hand, we have this incredible, like this is when uh, racism, according to Hirschman, remember, reaches its peak, right, during Jim Crow, not during the era of slavery. When the idea of race as this internal inherent thing reaches its peak. And so as a result of both push and pull factors, I will ask you about this on your quizzes and your exam. <clears throat> as a result of push and pull factors, blacks were pushed out of the South because of the violence and the racism, but also pulled to the North through the job availability in the, the industrializing cities up there. And so what by, by 1920, almost 40% of the black population in the North was concentrated in the eight cities of Chicago, Detroit, New York, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. And, um, and really it's in, it's in New York in the community of Harlem where, where we see this, this incredible, um, and we're going to talk more about the Harlem Renaissances later in this class, but it's really, we have this, this confluence of different factors, um, taking place in Harlem that leads to the Harlem Renaissance that leads to black culture becoming for the first time pop culture in which the authors say, which the authors say it is more than speculative to say that the burst of artistic talent, literary genius, and scholarship demonstrated by blacks caused whites to view black people from a different perspective. And so, and so for maybe for one of the, in one of the first times, African Americans are, are, are taking the reins of their own self-representation in a way that is legitimate for whites and, and, and in a way that is reaching and and affecting a large a large and larger segment of the white population this becomes incredibly important moving down the road right building up to the civil rights movement the civil rights movement doesn't happen without the harlem renaissance right without the activism begun by du bois and even booker t washington um in the early 1900s moving into the 1920s du bois of course founds the naacp and, and really, if we think about the period 1910 to 1940, once again, warfare comes into play. African-Americans experienced more racism in World War I than they did in World War II, even though it was a lot in both cases. But they did see more combat in World War II than they did in World War I. 
Also, we see um, more black employment in factories um, as a result of so many men going off to war and fight overseas. Um, this did a lot, right? Having, you know, being in a military unit and, and we didn't have integrated military units, but you still had white soldiers fighting alongside black soldiers. And you would see, right? You would see these incredible acts of bravery and sacrifice. And, and you know, and then think about how poorly you would treat these people at home. Um, all of these things were taking place at the time. Um, I do want to start wrapping up the podcast. So I want to move here to politics. <coughs> um, a bit of we see in the 1920s moving um, into the Great Depression. We do see a major political shift with the African-American population in general. Um, of course, ever since the Civil War, African-Americans voted Republican. It's the party of Lincoln, the party of emancipation. This made a lot of sense. <clears throat> but during, but, but in, the, in, in the period after the Great Migration, we have this population shift, African-Americans moving to northern cities um, where the Democrats could at least gain a bit more of a, um, where the Democrats were trying to gain a foothold. Remember, um, the, in the South, it was all completely Democrat because blacks had been shut out of the polls and no self-respecting white Southerner was going to vote for the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, the party of Northern aggression. And so Democrats, you know, they had the South locked up, but that wasn't enough for them to carry national elections. They needed to make a foothold in these northern states. And so Democrats paradoxically started courting black votes in these northern states. Um, one of the last straws in terms of black support for the Republican Party was the Herbert Hoover presidency, which led us into the Great Depression. That wasn't the only reason, though. Herbert Hoover was an unabashed racist. Um, what, is, what does our textbook have to say here? Yeah, on page 86, African-Americans begin to demonstrate um, an unprecedented proclivity toward political independence during the late 1920s. Um, in 1928, when Herbert Alfred Smith ran as a Democrat against Hoover, Hoover espoused the capitalist virtues of individualism, laissez-faire capitalism, and corporate rights. He was indisputably conservative and implicitly white supremacist in his ideologies. Al Smith may not have been a liberal, but as governor of New York, he advocated for strong public assistance programs and civil liberty protections. And so here we can see a Democrat maybe appealing more towards black voters in northern cities who are a little bit more removed from the Jim Crow South at this point than, um, than the Republican nominee at the time. This, of course, all very much changed in the direction of Democrats in 1932 when, as our textbook says, for the first time since Reconstruction, African-Americans voted in significant numbers in support of Democratic candidates. <clears throat> and and, and African-Americans have voted largely with the Democratic Party ever since 1932 and FDR's first election. All right. And I don't want to, I don't have this, I've already talked sort of about African-Americans in World War II, but I will say this kind of brings us up to 1948 and the integration of the U.S. Armed Forces, really one of the these cascading events that, that, that happens throughout the next 12 years. 
including Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, um, you know, major uh, integration um, decision there that really leads us to the, 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 the revolutionary, more revolutionary period of the 1960s. And this is, um, you know, I've heard Franklin and Moss and their history of African-Americans call the civil rights movement in the 1960s, the black revolution. We will pick up with that history after Du Bois week next week. Um, please do remember that there will be a quiz with this material. Um, I have, you know, covered some of the important parts that I want you to know from this material, which are things that I would also tend to ask about on a quiz. So please pay close attention to this podcast. I look forward to hearing from you on Thursday. I hope small groups go well. I hope you're staying safe. And please let me know if you have any questions. Everyone take care. I'll send this out on an announcement with videos. Bye-bye.